I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. LeVar Burton. That's a name you'd never expect me to say, but I'm saying it. He's a man that I grew up with. He was always around. Kept showing up and stuff. He wasn't really a father figure so much as just kind of like a... a cool uncle that was kind of around. I don't know about a cool uncle. He was around a lot. You kept seeing him popping up in your life when you least expect it. Started out back in uh, the early 80s when he had a show on PBS called Reading Rainbow with a pretty dramatic intro song. Uh, I can still remember and hear it vividly in my mind. But he had a lot of catchphrases and stuff like, uh, you know, put your nose in a good book or whatever. And and uh, it was a good show for kids. I enjoyed it. I watched it every morning in the summertime. I uh, couldn't watch it during the school year. Didn't have a VCR. So in the summer, I'd eat cereal, watch Reading Rainbow and once you got done reading the last story to you and promoting other works from other authors, you'd head out the door on your BMX bike and try not to get grabbed by any pedophiles. That was a different time. Then when I was in junior high, uh, he showed up again one day as we are in history class and they decided that they were going to play the movie Roots. And I thought, oh, well, this is going to be depressing. We've been learning all about the history of American slavery and how horrible it is. And now we're going to watch a a television movie that was made in the 70s. Uh, And it's going to be real depressing. Plus, it was made in the 70s for television, so it wasn't like high production values or anything. This is going to suck. I'm just going to go home and just be depressed. But all of a sudden, LeVar Burton's in there. He was Kunta Kinte. He was the main guy. Oh, that was a treat. That took the edge off that horrible... Horrible time in history to see LeVar. Well, not really. You saw him get whipped and, and beaten and all sorts of horrible stuff. So I guess it's not that great still. But anyways, then later on in the 90s when I was a real cool college kid, uh, getting high with my friends, wearing those fat pants and pumas and you know weird, wacky little sunglasses, listening to Sonic Youth and whatever else, uh, over at a friend's house, and all of a sudden he's watching... Star Trek Next Generation. I say, nerd, what are you watching that show for? And he said, oh, it's a good show. And I look, and God damn it, there's LeVar Burton. And he's wearing one of those weird hair things that my sister used to wear in the 80s. Totally low budget. It was, uh, it was, it looked like kind of like alligator teeth. And I guess you just put it in the back of your head and it takes all your hair and makes it kind of like a back mohawk. I don't know exactly how it worked. But he wear that thing on his face. It's supposed to be over his eyes. Uh, they spray painted it to look all silver. And God damn it, he pulled it off. He was just an amazing man. Uh, and so I watch the show when I go to my friend's house. Uh, there's LeVar Burton again, wearing my sister's hair thing on his eyes, uh, pretending like he's blind and this is some sort of new technology. Hair technology can cure the blind. Uh, so, you know, I'm always rooting for him. He's a good guy. You always wish him the best. Um, I guess he tried to get back into reading Rainbow, but PBS said no. 
So then he decided, well, I'm going to make a podcast out of Reading Rainbow. And they said, no, we own the rights to it. He says, fine, I'll do a podcast that has nothing to do with Reading Rainbow. But, you know, he knows who his audience are, a bunch of 40-year-old men and women that are listening to podcasts now in the 20s, or teens. And so he tries to use his catchphrases. They say, you can't use catchphrases. Can't say, put your nose in a good book. Can't say any of that stuff. Can't use Reading Rainbow because we're going to sue you. So he makes his podcast, and he gets his own new catchphrases, and uh, he's doing great. Am I happy for him? No, because he made all of us people that want to go out and read stories to people. Uh, he created that, and now he wants to get back in the game. He's like an old softball player that suddenly is coming out of retirement and is like, I'm going to get back in the game. And he's ruining it for the rest of us just based on his name value. Oh, he's got an intro where he talks about the book. And and then he, he takes a deep breath. Like he's uh, got to get all the negative energy out before he reads the story. He created a new catchphrase. It's genius. He doesn't even need reading Rainbow at this point. He's just moved on. Because that's the kind of man that he is. But he's cleaning up. He's got famous authors just handing short stories to him to read. And and uh, that's part of the problem. That's the main problem. All the rest of us have to get public domain books because we don't have connections like that. I don't know Stephen King. He's not going to let me read any of his stuff. Uh, so i got to go looking for books that are 100 years old. And racist. Meanwhile, I finally find one. It's a public domain book that was written in like 2008. A collection of short, short stories by Kelly Link. I finally get to read something that's not a hundred years old. Oh, boy, am I excited. So I'm sitting down, and I'm looking into Kelly Link and learning more about her. And all of a sudden, I see the one story I picked out that's a reasonable length to read. LeVar Burton's already read it for his damn podcast. They even say on the website, recent news, LeVar Burton reads The Specialist Hat. That's the story I was going to read. Says in the latest episode of his podcast this week, LeVar Burton reads Kelly's story, The Specialist Hat. And it, if you're ready, take a deep breath, dot, dot, dot. His damn catchphrase. I don't have catchphrases. So, you know what? I'm going to read it anyways. Because damn it, mine's going to be better. Uh, and I hate it that my childhood hero kind of came in and kind of stole my girlfriend away from me or something. It's just annoying. So damn it, mine's going to be better. So let's learn about the author. (music) Kelly Link, besides selling her soul to LeVar Burton, I was born in July 19th, 1969. The American editor and author of short stories. Eh, well, some of her fiction falls more clearly within genre categories. Many of her stories are described as slipstream or magic realism. Combination of science fiction, fantasy, horror, mystery, and realism. Eh, so she's won a bunch of awards. Basically, she's dating LeVar Burton. So that's all you need to know. She's a really good writer. I've looked through this, and I plan on getting a uh, full book of hers, and maybe even get Ben to read one with me for the Book Boys podcast. But I'm not going to do it with any joy in my heart, because basically, her and LeVar are just hanging out all the time, like best friends. Let's read the story. 
The Specialist Hat by Kelly Link from a collection of short stories called Stranger Things Happen. Eh, when you're dead, Samantha says, you don't have to brush your teeth. When you're dead, Claire says, you live in a box and it's always dark and you're not ever afraid. Claire and Samantha are identical twins. Their combined age is 20 years, four months, and six days. Claire is better at being dead uh, than Samantha. The babysitter yawns, covering up her mouth with a long white hand. I said to brush your teeth, and then it's time for bed, she says. She sits cross-legged on the flowered bedspread between them. She has been teaching them a card game called Pounce which involves uh, three deck of cards, one for each of them. Yeah, Samantha's deck is missing uh, the jack of spades and the two of hearts, and Claire keeps on cheating. The babysitter wins anyways. There's still flecks of dried shaving cream and toilet paper on her arms. It's hard to tell how old she is. Yeah, at first they thought she must be a grown-up, Yeah, but now she hardly looks older than they. Samantha's forgotten the babysitter's name. Claire's face is stubborn. Yeah, when you're dead, she says, you stay up all night long. And when you're dead, the babysitter snaps. It's always very cold and damp, and you have to be very, very quiet, or else the specialist will get you. This house is haunted, Claire says. I know it is, the babysitter says. I used to live here. Something is creeping up the stairs. Something is standing outside the door. Something is sobbing, sobbing in the dark. Something is sighing across the floor. Claire and Samantha are spending the summer with their father in the house called Eight Chimneys. Their mother's dead. Eh, She's been dead for uh, exactly 282 days. Their father is writing a history of Eight Chimneys and of the poet Charles Cheatham Rash, who lived here at the turn of the century and who ran away to sea uh, when he was 13 uh, and returned when he was 38. He married a father to child wrote three volumes of bad, obscure poetry, and even worse, a more obscure novel, uh, The One Who Is Watching Me Through the Window, before disappearing again in 1907, this time for good. Samantha and Claire's father says that some of the poetry is actually quite readable, and at least the novel isn't very long. When Samantha asked him why he was writing about Rash, he replied that no one else had, and why didn't she and Samantha go uh, play outside? When she pointed out uh, that she was Samantha, they just scowled and said, uh, could be expected to tell them apart when they both wore blue jeans and flannel shirts. And why couldn't one of them dress all in green and the other in pink? Claire and Samantha prefer to play inside. Eight chimneys is as big as a castle, but dustier and darker than Samantha imagines a castle would be. There are more sofas, uh, more china, shepherd dresses, and... And chipped fingers, fewer suits of armor, no moat. The house is open to the public, and during the day, people, families, drive along the Blue Ridge Parkway and will stop to the grounds and the first story. The third story belongs to Claire and Samantha. Sometimes they play explorers, and sometimes they follow the caretaker as he gives tours to visitors. After a few weeks, uh, they have memorized his lecture, and they mouth it along with him. They help him sell postcards and copies of Rashid poetry to the tourist families who come into the little gift shop. When the mothers smile at them and say, oh, how sweet they are, they stare back and don't say anything at all. The dim light in the house makes the mothers look pale and flickery and tired. They leave eight chimneys, mothers and families, looking not quite as real as they did before they paid their admissions. And of course, Claire and Samantha will never see them again. 
Eh, so maybe they aren't real. Better stay inside the house. They want to tell the families that if you must leave, then go straight to your cars. Caretaker says the woods aren't safe. Their father stays in the library on the second story all morning, typing. And in the afternoon, he takes long walks. He takes his pocket recorder along with him and a hip flask of Gentleman Jack. But not Samantha and Claire. The caretaker of Eight Chimneys is uh, Mr. Colesack. His left leg is noticeably shorter than his right. He wears one stacked heel. Short black hairs grow out of his ears and his nostrils. There is no hair at all on the top of his head. But he's given Samantha and Claire permission to explore the whole of the house. It was Mr. Colslack who told them that there were copperheads in the woods. And that the house is haunted. He says they're all ghosts and snakes are pretty bad-tempered lot. And Samantha and Claire should stick to the marked trails and stay out of the attic. Mr. Coleslack can tell the twins apart even if their father can't. Claire's eyes are gray, like a cat's fur, he says. But Samantha's are gray, like the ocean when it's been raining. Samantha and Claire went walking in the woods on the second day. They were at the eight chimneys. They saw something. Samantha thought it was a woman, but Claire said it was a snake. The staircase goes up to the attic. It had been locked. They peeked through the keyhole, but it was too dark to see anything. And so he had a wife, and they say she was real pretty. There was another man who wanted to go with her, and at first she wouldn't because she was afraid of her husband, and then she did. Her husband found out, and they say he killed a snake and got some of the snake's blood and put it in some whiskey and gave it to her. He had learned this from an island man who had been on a ship with him. In about six months, snakes created in her, and they got between her meat and the skin, and they say you could just see them running up and down her legs. They say she was just hollow to the top of her body and kept it on like that till she died. And now my daddy said he saw it, an oral history of eight chimneys. Eight Chimneys is over 200 years old. It is named for the eight chimneys that are each big enough that Samantha and Claire can both fit in one fireplace. The chimneys are red brick, and on each floor there are eight fireplaces, making a total of uh, 24. Samantha imagines the chimney stacks stretching like stout red tree trunks all the way up to the slate roof of the house. Beside each fireplace is a heavy black fire dog and a set of uh, wrought iron pokers shaped like snakes. Claire and Samantha pretend to duel with the snake pokers before the fireplace in their bedroom on the third floor. Wind rises up the back of the chimney. Uh, When they stick their faces in, they can feel the air rushing damply upwards like a river. The flue smells old and sooty and wet like stones from a river. Their bedroom was once the nursery. They sleep together in a poster bed which resembles a ship with four masts. It smells like uh, uh, mothballs and Claire kicks in her sleep. Charles Chatham Rash slept here when he was a little boy and also his daughter. She disappeared when her father did. It might have been the gambling debts. They may have moved to New Orleans. She was uh, 14 years old, Mr. Koslick said. What was her name, Claire asked. Uh, what happened to her mother, Samantha wanted to know. Mr. Koslick closed his eyes and almost a wink. Yeah. Mrs. Rash had died the year before her husband and daughter disappeared, he said, of a mysterious wasting disease. He can't remember the name of the poor little girl. He said, Eight Chimneys has exactly 100 windows, all still with the original wavery panes of hand-blown glass, 
With so many windows, Samantha thinks, hey, chimney should always be full of light. Instead, the trees press close against the house, so that the rooms of the first and second story, even the third story rooms, are green and dim, as if Samantha and Claire were living deep under the sea. This is the light that makes the tourists into ghosts. In the morning, they, and again toward the evening, a fog settles in around the house. Sometimes it is gray like Claire's eyes, and sometimes it is gray like Samantha's eyes. I met a woman in the wood. Her lips were two red snakes. As she smiled at me, her eyes were lewd and burning like fire. A few nights ago, the wind was sighing in the nursery chimney. Yeah, their father had already tucked them in and turned off the light. Claire dared Samantha to stick her head into the fireplace in the dark. And so she did. The cold, wet air licked at her face, and it almost sounded like the voices talking low, yeah, muttering. She couldn't quite make out what they were saying. Their father was mostly ignored Claire and Samantha since they arrived at eight chimneys. He never mentions their mother. One evening, they heard him shouting in the library. And when they came downstairs, there was a large sticky stain on his desk where a glass of whiskey had been knocked over. He was looking at me, he said, through the window. It had orange eyes. Samantha and Claire refrained from pointing out that the library is on the second story. At night, their father's breath has been sweet from drinking. And he is spending more and more time in the woods, uh, less in the library. At dinner... Yeah, usually hot dogs and baked beans from a can, which they ate off paper plates in the first floor dining room beneath the Austrian chandelier, which was exactly 632 lead crystals shaped like teardrops. Their father recites the poetry of Charles Cheatham Rash, which neither Samantha nor Claire cares for. He's been reading the ship diaries that Rash kept. He says that he has discovered proof in them that Rash is the most famous poem, the specialist hat is not a poem at all, and in any case, Rash didn't write it. It is something that one of the men on the whaler used to say to conjure up a whale. Rash simply copied it down and stuck an end on it, and that is his. The man uh, was from Molotipu. Molotipu. Not looking it up which is a place neither Samantha nor Claire has ever heard of. Ah, their father says that the man was supposed to be some sort of magician, but he drowned shortly before Rash came back to eight chimneys. Their father says that the other sailors wanted to throw the magician's chest overboard, but Rash persuaded them uh, to let him keep it until it could be put ashore uh, with the chest off the coast of North Carolina. The specialist hat makes a noise like an, a gouty. Oh, Lord. Let's look that one up. Agouti. Agouti. The specialist hat makes a noise like an agouti. The specialist hat makes a noise like a collared peccary. Not looking that one up. The specialist hat makes a noise like a white lip peccary. The specialist hat makes a noise like a taper. The specialist hat makes a noise like a rabbit. The specialist hat makes a noise like a squirrel. The specialist hat makes a noise like a carasso. I'm not looking all these up. The specialist hat moans ah, like a whale in the water. The specialist hat moans like the wind in my wife's hair. <laughs> I'd like to hear what that sounds like. The specialist hat makes a noise like a snake. I have hung the hat of the specialist upon my wall. 
The reason that Claire and Samantha have a babysitter is that their father met a woman in the woods. <laughs> He's going to see her tonight, and they are going to have a picnic supper and look at the stars. This is a time of year when the parasites can be seen falling across the sky on clear nights. Their father said that he has been walking with the woman every afternoon. She is a distant relation of Rash, and besides, he said, he needs a night off and some grown-up conversation. Mr. Koslak won't stay in the house after dark, but he agreed to find someone to look after Samantha and Claire. Then their father couldn't find Mr. Koslak, but the babysitter showed up precisely at 7 o'clock. The babysitter, whose name neither twin quite caught, wears a blue cotton dress well, with his short, floaty sleeves. Both Samantha and Claire think she is pretty in an old-fashioned sort of way. They were in the library with their father looking up Mulatupu in the red leather atlas. When she arrived, she didn't knock on the front door. She simply walked in and went up the stairs as if she knew where to find them. Ah, their father kissed them goodbye. A hasty smack told them to be good, and he would take them into town on the weekend to see a Disney film. They went to the window to watch as he walked into the woods. Already it was getting dark, and there were fireflies. Tiny yellow hot sparks in the air. When their father had entirely disappeared into the trees, they turned around and stared at the babysitter instead. As she raised one eyebrow. Yeah, well, she said. What set of games do you want to play? Widow shins around the chimneys, once, twice again. The spokes click like a clock on the bicycle. They tick down the days of the life of a man. At first they played go fish, ah, and then they played crazy eights. And then they made the babysitter into a mummy by putting shaving cream from their father's bathroom on her arms and legs and wrapping her in toilet paper. She is the best babysitter they have ever had. Can you imagine living in a world where you can just waste toilet paper like that? Can't do that nowadays. At 9.30, she tried to put them to bed. Neither Claire nor Samantha wanted to go to bed, so they began to play the dead game. The dead game is a let's pretend that they have been playing every day for uh, 274 days now, but never in front of their father or any other adult. When they are dead, they are allowed to do anything they want to do. They can even fly by jumping off the nursery bed and just waving their arms. Someday this will work if they practice hard enough. Yeah, the dead game's got three rules. One, numbers are significant. The twins keep a list of important numbers and a green address book that belonged to their mother, Mr. Koslak's tour had been a good source of significant amounts of tallies. They've been writing a tragical history of numbers. Two, the twins don't play the dead game in front of grown-ups. They've been summing up the babysitter and have decided that she doesn't count. They tell her the rules. Three is the best and most important rule. When you are dead, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Samantha and Claire aren't sure who the specialist is, but they aren't afraid of him. To become dead, they hold their breath while counting to uh, 35, which is as high as their mother got, not counting a few days. You never lived here, Claire says. Mr. Koslak lives here. Uh, Not at night, the babysitter says. This was my bedroom when I was little. Yeah, really? Samantha says. Claire says, "Eh, prove it. The babysitter gives Samantha and Claire a look as if she is measuring them. How old, how smart, how brave, how tall. Then she nods. 
The wind is in the flue, and the dim nursery light, they can see the milky strands of fog seeping out of the fireplace. Go stand in the chimney, she instructs them. Stick your head as far up as you can, and there's a little hole on the left side with a key in it. Samantha looks at Claire and says, go ahead. Claire's 15 minutes and some few uncounted seconds older than Samantha, and therefore gets to tell Samantha what to do. Samantha remembers the muttering voices and then reminds herself that she is dead. She goes over to the fireplace and ducks inside. When Samantha stands up in the chimney, she can only see the very edge of the room, and she can see the fringe of mothy blue rug, one bed leg, and beside it, Claire's foot swinging back and forth like a metronome. Claire's shoelace has come undone, and there is a band-aid on her ankle. It all looks very pleasant and peaceful from inside the chimney, like a dream. And for a moment, she almost wishes she didn't have to be dead. But it's safer, really. She sticks her left hand up as far as she can reach, trailing it along the crumbly wall until she feels an indentation. She thinks about uh, spiders and severed fingers and rusty razor blades, and then she reaches inside. As she keeps her eyes lowered, focused on the corner of the room and Claire's twitchy foot, inside the hole, there's a tiny cold key, its teeth facing outward. She pulls it out and ducks back into the room. Ah, she wasn't lying, says Claire. Of course I wasn't lying, the babysitter said. When you're dead, you're not allowed to tell lies. Unless you want to, Claire says. Dreary and dreadful beats the sea at the shore, ghastly and dripping is the mist at the door. The clock in the hall is chiming one, two, three, four. The morning comes not, no, never, no more. Samantha and Claire have gone to camp for three weeks every summer since they were seven. This year, Father didn't ask them if they wanted to go back, and after discussing it, they decided it was just as well. They didn't want to have to explain to all their friends how they were half-orphans now. They are used to being envied because they are identical twins. They don't want to be pitiful. It has not even been a year, ah, but Samantha realizes that she is forgetting what her mother looked like. Not, not her mother's face so much as the way she smelled, which was something like dry hay and something like Chanel Number no. 5 and something else, too. Ah, she can't remember whether her mother had gray eyes or like her or, or gray eyes like Claire. She doesn't dream about her mother anymore, but she does dream about Prince Charming, a bay whom she once rode in the horse show at her camp. In the dream, Prince Charming did not smell like a horse at all. He smelled like Chanel Number no. 5. When she is dead, she can have all the horses she wants, and they can all smell like Chanel Number no. 5. Where does the key go to? Samantha says. Yeah, the babysitter holds out her hand. Uh, to the attic. You don't really need it, but taking the stairs is uh, easier than the chimney. At least the first time. Aren't you going to make us go to bed? Claire said. The babysitter ignores Claire. My father used to lock me in the attic when I was little, but I didn't mind. There's a bicycle up there, and I used to ride it around and around the chimneys until my mother let me out again. Do you know how to ride a bicycle? Yeah, of course, Claire says. If you ride fast enough, the specialist can't catch you. Uh, what's the specialist? Samantha says. Bicycles are okay, but horses go faster. The specialist wears a hat. Yeah, I said the babysitter. The hat uh, makes noises. She doesn't say anything else. When you're dead, the grass is greener. Over your grave, the wind is keener. Your eyes sink in, your flesh decays, and you grow accustomed to slowness. Expect delays. 
The attic somehow bigger and lonelier than Samantha and Claire thought it would be. The babysitter's key opens the locked door at the end of the hallway, revealing a narrow set of stairs. She waves them ahead and upwards. It isn't as dark in the attic as they had imagined. The oaks that block the light and make the first three stories so dim and green and mysterious during the day don't reach all the way up. Ah, extravagant moonlight, dusty and pale, streams in the angled dormer windows. It lights the length of the attic, which is wide enough to hold a softball game in. And lined with trunks, where Samantha imagines people would sit, could be hiding and watching. The ceiling slopes down, impaled upon the eight thick-waisted chimney stacks. The chimneys seem too alive, somehow to be contained in this empty, neglected space. They thrust almost angrily through the roof and attic floor. In the moonlight, they look like they are breathing. They're so beautiful, she says. Which chimney is the nursery chimney, Claire says. The babysitter points at the nearest uh, right-hand stack. That one, she says. It runs up through the ballroom on the first floor, the library, and the nursery. Hanging from a nail on the nursery chimney is a long black object. It looks lumpy and heavy, as if it were full of things. The babysitter takes it down, twirls it on her finger. There are holes in the back thing, and it whistles mournfully as she spins it. The specialist hat, she says. Yeah, it doesn't look like a hat, said Claire. It doesn't look like anything at all. She goes to look through the boxes and trunks that are stacked against the far wall. Oh, it's a specialist hat, the babysitter said. It's not supposed to look like anything, but it can sound like anything you can imagine. Yeah, my, my father made it. Our father writes books, Samantha says. My father did, too. The babysitter hangs the hat back on the nail. It curls blackly against the chimney. Samantha stares at it. It nickers at her. He was a bad poet, but he was worse at magic. Last summer, Samantha wished more than anything that she could have a horse. She thought she would have given up anything for one. Even being a twin was not as good as having a horse. She still didn't have a horse, but she doesn't have a mother either, and she can't help wondering if it's her fault. The hat nickers again, or maybe it is a wind in the chimney. Well, what happened to him? Claire asks. Yeah, after he made the hat, the specialist came and took him away. I hid in the nursery chimney while I was looking for him. Yeah, it didn't find me. Weren't you scared? There's a clattering, shivering, clicking noise. Claire has found the babysitter's bike is dragging it toward them by the handlebars. The babysitter shrugs. Eh, rule number three, she says. Claire snatches the hat off the nail. I'm the specialist, she says, putting the hat on her head. It falls over her eyes, the floppy, shapeless brim soon with the little asymmetrical buttons that flash and catch in the moonlight like teeth. Samantha looks again and sees that they are teeth. Without counting, she suddenly knows that there are exactly 52 teeth on the hat and that they are the teeth of uh, Agoutis and Cusseros, not looking any of the stuff up, of white-lipped peccaries and the wife of Charles Catham. Chatham rash. <laughs> the chimneys are moaning, and Claire's voice booms hollowly beneath the hat. Run away, or I'll catch you. I'll eat you. Samantha and the babysitter run away, laughing as Claire mounts the rusty, noisy bicycle and pedals madly after them. Oh, she rings the bicycle bell as she rides, and the specialist hat bobs up and down on her head. It spits like a cat. The bell is shrill and thin, and the bike wails and shrieks. 
It leans first toward the right and then to the left. Claire's knobby knees stick out on either side like makeshift counterweights. Claire weaves in and out between the chimneys, chasing Samantha, the babysitter. Samantha's slow, turning to look behind. As Claire approaches, she keeps one hand on the handlebars and stretches the other hand out toward Samantha. Just as she is about to grab Samantha, the babysitter turns back and plucks the hat off Claire's head. Yeah, shit, the babysitter says and drops it. There's a drop of blood forming on the fleshy part of the babysitter's hand, black in the moonlight, where the specialist hat had bitten her. Claire dismounts, eh, giggling. Samantha watches as the specialist hat rolls away. It picks up speed, veering across the attic floor, and disappears, thumping down the stairs. Go get it, Claire says. Hey, you can be the specialist this time. No, the babysitter says, sucking at her palm. Eh, it's time for bed. When they go down the stairs, there's no sign of the specialist hat. They brush their teeth, climb into the ship bed, pull the covers up to their necks, and the babysitter sits between their feet. And you're dead, Samantha says. Do you still get tired and have to go to sleep? Do you have uh, dreams? When you're dead, the babysitter says, everything's a lot easier. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. You don't have to have a name. You don't have to remember you don't even have to breathe. She shows them exactly what she means. When she has time to think about it, and now she has all the time in the world to think, Samantha realizes with a small pang that she is now stuck indefinitely between 10 and 11 years old, stuck with Claire and the babysitter. She considers this. The number 10 is pleasing and round, like the beach ball. But all in all, it hasn't been an easy year. She wonders what 11 would have been like. Sharper, like needles, maybe. She has chosen to be dead with a capital D instead. She hopes that she's made the right decision. She wonders if her mother would have decided to be dead with a capital D instead of dead with a lowercase d. If she could have. Last year, they were learning fractions in school when her mother died. Fractions reminded Samantha of herds of wild horses. Highballs and pintos and palominos. There are so many of them, uh, and they are, well, fractious and unruly. Just as when you think you have one under control, it throws up its head and tosses you off. Claire's favorite number is uh, four, which she says is a tall, skinny boy. Samantha doesn't care for boys that much. She likes numbers. Take the number eight, for instance, which can be more than one thing at once. Looked at one way, it looks like a, a bent woman with curvy hair. Yeah, but if you lay it down inside, it looks like a snake curled with its tail in its mouth. This is a sort of a, like the difference between being capital D dead and being lowercase d dead. Maybe when Samantha is tired of one, she will try the other. On the lawn, under the oak tree, she hears someone calling her name. Samantha climbs out of bed and goes to the nursery window. She looks out through the wavy glass. It's Mr. Koslak. Samantha, Claire, he calls up to her. Are you all right? Is your father there? Samantha can almost see the moonlight shining through him. They're always locking me in the tool room. Goddamn spooky things, he says. Are you there, Samantha, Claire, girls? The babysitter comes and stands beside Samantha. The babysitter puts her finger to her lip. Claire's eyes glitter at them from the dark bed. Samantha doesn't say anything, but she waves at Mr. Koslak. 
The babysitter waves too. Maybe he can see them waving because after a little while he stops shouting and goes away. Yeah, be careful, the babysitter says. He'll be coming soon. It'll be coming soon. She takes Samantha's hand and leads her back to the bed where Claire is waiting. They sit and wait. Time passes, but they don't get tired. They don't get any older. Who's there? Just air. The front door opens on the first floor, and Samantha, Claire, and the babysitter can hear someone creeping, creeping up the stairs. Be quiet, the babysitter says. It's the specialist. Samantha and Claire are quiet. The nursery is dark, and the wind crackles like a fire in the fireplace. Claire, Samantha, Samantha, Claire, the specialist's voice is blurry and wet. It sounds like their father's voice, but that's because the hat can imitate any noise, any voice. Are you still awake? Quick, the babysitter says. It's time to go up to the attic and hide. Claire and Samantha slip out from under the covers and dress quickly and silently. They follow her without speech, without breathing. She pulls them into the safety of a chimney. It's too dark to see, but they understand that the babysitter perfectly when she mouths the word up. She goes first, so they can see where the finger holes are, the bricks that jut out just for their feet. Then Claire, Samantha, watches her sister's foot ascend like smoke, the shoelace still untied. Claire? Samantha? God damn it, you're scaring me. Where are you? The specialist is standing just outside the half-open door. Samantha, I think I've been bitten by something. I think I've been bitten by a goddamn snake. Samantha hesitates for only a second. Then she is climbing up, up, up the nursery chimney. Well, there was that. Uh, was it as good as LeVar Burton? No, it was not. Am I ever going to have a, a live podcast, which are always painful to listen to because they're recorded so horribly, uh, where I read books in front of a, a sea of people in some sort of a orpheum? No, I'm not. LeVar Burton has. He just walked right into it. He didn't have to work his way up from the bottom of podcasting to finally get his live show. He just said, hey, I'm LeVar Burton. My first show is going to be a live one. And everyone said, fine. That's what I'm up against here. Thanks, turd, for both inspiring me and enriching my childhood. And then scooping in later to just clean up where the rest of us are trying to uh, pick up. It's a lot like if you went to a children's hospital or something because you want to do a good thing for children who are going through some horrible stuff and suffering, and you think, well, I have a skill. My skill is uh, playing the flute. I'm going to go, and I'm going to play the flute for these children, and uh, hopefully they'll enjoy it, and it'll just give them a little reprieve in the middle of the day. And you walk in with your flute, and you say, oh, I'm going to play the flute for you, and the kids go, yeah, there's a guy here last week. He was famous, and... um he played a flute, and he did it better than you're probably going to. Also, his flute was literally made by Christ. And they go, ah, all right. And the kids go, so you can play a flute. What's your flute? Who made it? They go, well, my flute's made of crap. I don't have a flute made by anyone important. Uh, I was just going to play it. And they go, oh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead and play it. It's, I mean, it's not going to be a Christ flute, but it's you know, fine. If you want to do this, we'll patiently wait for you to leave. 
That's what LeVar Burton did here on my podcast. So, thanks for listening. And uh, maybe next week I'll find something that LeVar Burton didn't already take.